Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hi, this is Jeff Mao from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Manuel Gottsching is a German music icon, arguably one of the country's most dynamic and influential talents. In the early 70s, he co-founded and played lead guitar for pioneering krautrock group Ashra Temple, which in addition to releasing several heralded albums, inspired space rock and psychedelic bands like Philadelphia's Hash Jar Tempo. During the mid-70s, Gottsching released several works of minimalist guitar music. Then, in 1984, he made a surprising left turn with the release E2E4. Recognized as one of the best albums of the 80s by Pitchfork, E2E4 seamlessly wed Gutching's work on the guitar with minimal electronic music. Today, it is often credited as an essential forebear for house and techno. In 1989, part of E2E4 was remixed by Sueño Latino for their eponymous smash single. The track would subsequently be remixed and sampled by Detroit music legends like Derek May and Carl Craig. Since then, Gottsching has resurrected Ashra Temple and continued to compose a variety of new music. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded during the 2018 Red Bull Music Academy, Gottsching discussed his upbringing in Germany, his years with Ashra Temple, the inspirations behind and influence of E2E4, and much more. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. We heard a little bit of music in the background as you guys were entering the room. Um, this was a, a recording from 1976 by Manuel um, entitled Shuttlecock. It is an 18-minute version of this composition. Um, and this is by no means the longest piece of music that he's worked on and recorded, you have music that is 18 minutes, 30 minutes, very famous piece, which we'll get to later, which is a little bit longer. And um, <laughs> I just wanted to ask you firstly, what is, what is it about very expansive pieces that is so appealing for you as an artist and musician? The, uh, the, the, the length of the pieces, you mean? Yeah. Yes. That's very simple because uh, my biggest uh, aim in music is to improvise and so I just start playing and uh, there's no end so I start as long as I want to and I, as long as I think is it, it's, it has a, uh, an expression or a feeling or a red line or something and then some moment I think well it's okay or it's over and then I stop it so uh, yes I have a lot of pieces uh, recorded uh, or played. The first Ashra Temple concerts here in Berlin, we played sometimes one hour, two hours. Uh, there's a there's a funny picture in the in this book. Maybe some of them, some of you know it from Julian Cope, Krautrock Sampler. There's a picture where you see uh, us, my partner Hartmut Enke on bass, me on guitar and with long hairs like this. You don't see anything. Uh, maybe my nose is out. 
and Klaus Schrutzer on drums. And uh, there's the line, on, uh, the line written under the photo is, um, uh, Ashra Temple could play for hours without uh, uh, looking at each other. <laughs> so we played sometimes yeah, three hours, four hours without, uh, without talking or without stopping. Yeah. And we had problems then to record, of course, because uh, the the length of a of a vinyl was 20 minutes per side, or maybe 30. Sometimes, if uh, if it's not too much dynamics, you can do it. I did it with E2E4. I had to do it. Um, so I started also to, to compose and to construct shorter pieces. Uh, so it varies from some... I think the shortest one is less than three minutes that I did. And the longest one is one hour. So there's a, a point at some point where you realize it's the expression is complete. So how, how does it start then, I guess? Yes, it depends on, on, on the feeling of the music. It, it depends what you, what you do. Sometimes I construct, I, I compose pieces. Uh, then I know exactly what it is. And then I see after, I, I decided after the um, possibilities of the composition, of the tonality, the chords, the harmonies. And, and sometimes I don't do it. Sometimes I don't, I just... Uh, start playing on and uh, I don't think about much about composition improvisation is then the basic uh, thing and then of course it's it's there's no time limit uh, many pieces I did are a mixture of both it's a mixture of a, there's a there's a structure for from for composition But there's a possibility to improvise over this structure, over this some harmonies or some chords or some rhythms, and then sometimes it's longer, sometimes not. I wonder if you could um, just take us back a little bit um, to your beginnings. Where did you grow up, um, and what was your early musical memories? What were your early musical memories? Well, I grew up in, in former West Berlin, in the western part of the city of Berlin. And uh, my first of uh, very early uh, influences were, of course, through the radio. Uh, in the 1950s, there were the, the uh, radio station by, by American Allied Forces, British Allied Forces, BFBS, AFN, also the French ones. And uh, so when I was a child, of course, I, I listened to that. Uh, I, I got somehow the radio. Um, my mother was, uh, was interested in music. She loved opera. So uh, I, uh, uh, I, I listened to uh, uh, Italian operas, Verdi, Puccini. Uh, I loved those bel canto style. Um, Uh, of course, I I was a bit too young in the 50s, so I, I didn't get so much of rock and roll. Of course, I remember a little bit the first Elvis and so, but mm, the more influences came in the 1960s. So uh, when I also started to be active in music, I started studying uh, classical guitar, um, so I became interested in classical uh, guitar pieces. 
And of course, there was the pop music that was uh, started with American music, uh, like a Motown sounds. Uh, I listened in the radio, but it was also the Rolling Stones and the British blues bands and uh, British guitar players. So I, I switched from classic guitar to electric guitar. And uh, in the beginning, I didn't know anything about electric guitar. I really had to learn it from as, as a new playing because it has not very much to do with the classic guitar playing. And uh, yeah, that was the early. And when you started your first band, um, what was the main influence? Was it blues or was it American rhythm and blues or, or what? The first band was at school. This was just for fun. So we, we, we started uh, to, to, to cover some some songs that we liked. We were 13, 14 years old, but this was already with my later partner, with my partner over the years with whom I finally founded uh, Ashra Temple, Hartmut Enke. Uh, so we played some Rolling Stones, we played some Beatles, we played some Who, some what was the popular music and that was just for fun. We played at some uh, school parties and so and the funny thing is uh, I, I was a singer in the band I didn't play guitar <laughs> because uh, I couldn't I couldn't I convinced my mother to, to give me to, to get a guitar for Christmas an electric guitar to buy one and I really couldn't play anything with it. so I, I wanted to become the drummer uh, because I like to play drums And my partner Hartmut said, no, you have to play guitar, you have to. And I said, no, and the compromise was I'm the singer. So the problem was I didn't know any very much English at the time. So uh, I tried to uh, make uh, sounds that sounded a little bit English, like that, what I heard in the radio. <laughs> Well, it was fun and nobody cared. And so, so uh, and later I was sometimes I was really uh, shocked when I read uh, the original lyrics, and that's what what I understood at the time was completely different. So, when did it sort of transition away from doing something that was so heavily influenced by the UK bands that were blues inspired? You know. Um, towards something more of an original creation of the things that were coming out of this country in particular? Um, that was very, very soon after one year, we just were tired of, of playing cover songs. It was just a little boring. And um, we had a choice either to make it more professional, uh, but we, we didn't want it. And so we, we really thought about um, how to play our own music, our own style, or just how to create music. And uh, there were two, well, one important thing was uh, the birthday of, of, the 16th birthday of, of Hartmut. Uh, he, he got a, a, a vinyl from Blue Cheer playing the summertime blues, which was more hard rock than blues uh, in a way. And we were really fascinated by this. And we thought, oh, we, we try this, this type of style. At the same time, another influence, which is, uh, was an influence in Germany, in the German music, this was free jazz. Uh, and although we didn't like jazz, but the impact was free make free music so this could be free rock free folk free whatever free classic maybe yeah uh, 
And so we we were fascinated uh, yeah, to create sounds and to make really free music, freestyle, uh, uh, without any structures or music uh, rules, uh, just starting and playing. And that was in 1968, and we found a third member for it. We made one concert, I remember. We had to leave the stage after 10 minutes because... <laughs> The, the young kids, they wanted to hear some cover bands who play the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and not this. And So we were a bit too early, uh, 14, 15. So, and then we switched a little bit playing blues themes, but trying to improvise at the same time, trying to combine composition and uh, improvisation a little bit in the style as a group Cream, we're doing it on the there are some legendary albums where they play short blues themes and they start improvising for half an hour and then find back to the theme. Yeah, we like that. And and later the time was right to switch again to completely free improvisation and we founded Ashra Temple. So we played exactly like the thing before. We had a blues. We called ourselves before Steeplechase Blues Band, which was... The name was, uh, yeah, we were not a blues band. We didn't play blues. We just used some elements of it, but tried to keep with a freestyle of uh, improvisation uh, and using some blues themes. And for, for starting to compose or to build up your own ideas with music, blues is a fantastic start because it's very simple and you can, yeah, for a start, it's a good thing. And then you can develop something else out of it. Uh, just out of curiosity, what, what's this, what sort of free jazz artists or compositions were you listening to at that time as an influence? Was it, or was it just the idea of free jazz as a, as a concept? It was more the idea because we, we didn't like jazz. So jazz was, for me, uh, it was the old skiffle bands or, or uh, uh, swing, or old people playing some swing at uh, branches on Sunday morning. <laughs> so we didn't like that. We thought it's completely outdated. But there was a nice place in Berlin called Jazz Gallery, uh, a small club and we, we quite often went there and saw people and there were also blues musicians coming there and playing and so we got a little bit influenced but not really from the from the free music free free jazz scene i don't remember i think i don't uh, hear a record so i don't remember that but the idea was fascinating right. so more of a conceptual thing i mean that's interesting though because like i mean um, african-american Identity as it associated with free jazz. This is very revolutionary music. Um, but what you're creating with Ashra Temple and all the other bands that are emerging at this time was also something that had a very specific, um, a specific roots in that era and coming out of what you've described as a vacuum. And I wonder if you could just sort of elaborate on that a little bit. What were you guys facing culturally? Um, this cultural vacuum that you've referred to in the past. Can you kind of describe what that is for everybody here? Mm. Yeah, you have to go back to Berlin, maybe in the 1920s, 100 years ago. Berlin was a quite lively city with very interesting cultural scene with music and theater, cabarets and... Uh, 
literature and uh, very experimental. There were uh, there were there was some people from the Dada movement. There was Walter Meering and and uh, George Gross, for example. They composed a piece for. Uh, a knitting machine and a, and a typewriter that performed that. Uh, or there was another composer, Volpe. Uh, I, I found out he, he worked with 10 gramophone players uh, with different speeds. He played Beethoven symphonies. So nothing new in the 90s has <laughs> been there. So, uh, so it was really interesting, a very lively thing. And all this was cut down, all this was uh, yeah, killed and uh, gassed and uh, some people who were lucky could uh, flee or emigrate and uh, after 1945 <clears throat> there was nothing left, there was this what you call vacuum and so it was not only Berlin was not only the houses were ruins, but the culture was ruined. Uh, so and it had to be built again. And people were very careful because people felt guilt and uh, they didn't want to be too loud. So they started with German Schlager again. Uh, this was, of course, yeah, German folk or German Schlager, maybe German songs, very simple and... and text lyrics about love and about some holidays in Italy. And this is the popular music of that day, yeah. That was the popular music, yeah. And, uh, but there still was jazz, uh, so the jazz scene was very lively in Berlin before the war. And jazz was, of course, also forbidden in, during the Nazi time. Uh, or they tried to Germanize jazz in a way which was ridiculous, yeah. And, of course, people wanted to listen to the real jazz or swing, what was popular. And so, after the war, there were also some, some new, young, younger musicians who tried to keep up with the jazz uh, scene and uh, try... Uh, but uh, they, they were, there was a gap. There was, they, they, they couldn't listen, they couldn't follow the jazz development for, for five years or even more. Uh, so it was a bit outdated and then there were uh, orchestras, um, big bands, the radios, every radio station had his own uh, or, or several uh, big bands and, and uh, dance orchestras, uh, dance orchestra we, we said. Uh, so this was the music scene and not very progressive or creative or inventive or something. And then came the 50s, the rock and roll. There were, yes, there were three, four uh, singers in Germany like Peter Kraus, Zed Herold, who played a very shy version of rock and roll, <laughs> which was also not so attractive. So it was German Schlager. And it was only in the 60s. It started... Uh, beginning of the 60s with, of course, with influences from America, from Britain. Uh, yeah, it started with protests and folk music with Bob Dylan and then protests, folk music in, in Germany grew uh, in, in beginning of the or first half of the 60s. Uh, and in pop music, there came the Rolling Stones. And this was also new, this was protest, this was not nice 
uh, lyrics. This was satisfaction. I can get now. <laughs> so uh, this was new. And this, yeah, probably uh, inspired the young, the new generation, the young generation in Germany to create something new. So there was German protest, folk music. Uh, there was, uh, yeah, there, there was a complete new scene developing and uh, very experimental. And uh, yeah, there was an audience. People wanted to hear that. So uh, it was, yeah, concerts and, 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 and were welcome. And uh, yeah, it was a... Very creative and lively years, I think. Yeah, so. uh, my my biggest uh, fear was to record or to, to make too much a record production. So I wanted to keep it as much as possible like our life. This was exactly like we played live our concerts. and So we only had to reduce it for 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> so we just played and we took some parts. Uh, but it's quite close to that, how the live concerts had been at the time. And we had problems, technically problems, not with the music, but with the, to record it, because uh, we couldn't find a, a proper studio for that. We, we tried... Uh, the company we started with was a small label or music production. We can maybe talk later about this. Uh, and uh, they... The, the owner of the label was working together with uh, a very popular guy in the Schlagerbranche and they had a small office uh, in, within a big building of the Schlager company, Meisel, and they had a small studio there for demo studio for, for, for Schlager singer. Uh, so, and we went there and uh, put all our big, huge amplifiers and cabinets there and we played 10 minutes and then we had to stop because the whole building was shaking and uh, the secretaries said, oops, we can't work anymore. <laughs> and then we started, uh, we went to another studio, to a quite professional studio at the time in West Berlin called the Audio Studio. There was an engineer who didn't understand anything. He, he just put uh, uh, yeah, he, he put the faders in some position and then he left the, the control room and we started, usually we started quite slow, was quite low and then became louder and louder and louder. And of course, after 10 minutes, it was so loud that everything, the complete tapes were only uh, dis, uh, distorted. And the producer said, no, I don't pay that. So, And finally, we had to go to Hamburg and to, we were lucky to meet the legendary uh, engineer, Connie Plank. At, at the time, he was quite young and uh, he later became a legend in, in music producing and engineering in Germany. And he was the right man. He, he, he loved it and he said, wow, well, yes, we need some phasing here and we need here, and yes. And he added this. So he was really playing as a fourth member with us when we, when we uh, recorded it. And, yeah, that's a good, that was really a fantastic production. This is music that was created to expand one's consciousness or that's how it's been described. Was that the, was that the intention? 
Oh, yes, that's, uh, well, no, I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, this, this was some of the, this was the common kind of uh, promotion in that time because it has, music had to have some meaning and you had to explain why, why do you make music and what's the reason and what do you want to express with your music. And so you had to find something uh, and it was my partner Hartmut, he was great in that and he explained everybody to but that we find new consciousness and whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> I didn't care. I just wanted to play music. And that's <laughs> but I mean, this this leads to an interesting point as far as just how people, like you say, are marketing or labeling music. Um, even in a place, <clears throat> excuse me, like Berlin at the time, which I guess it was no, or it was a fledgling industry. It was an industry that was building back up. There was a, no, you had said that there's no music industry really when you started here. Um, and yet there's still this compulsion, this need to have to be able to market something or make it tangible in a way for people because this yes, is so experimental. Yes, 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 you're right. That was the, but the industry was the Schlager music. That was a big industry. But for that type, there was nothing compared to Britain or England or America where uh, there was a complete industry for the beat music, for the rock music. There was an agent, there was a manager, there was a label, there was a publisher. And in Germany, these bands or groups and musicians at the time, they were completely doing all by themselves. Officially, the management was forbidden in, in Germany. You had to ask to go to the governmental uh, to the state uh, department to ask for a job as a musician. <laughs> It was crazy. So. so you couldn't actually have a music manager. It was not. No, a... no. We had to do it ourselves. So it was the road manager, was the manager, or the the, the, the graphic designer, or the photographer was at the same time the manager. Or we, we, you did it all yourself. Yeah. So this was very unprofessional. But on the other hand, it was yeah. It it it, it gave an atmosphere of really a very creative atmosphere was happening mm -hmm. because people were so. I mean, there was a lot of. Crazy things happened, and a lot of things were completely stupid, but uh, some really nice things emerged because of this uh, non-professional behavior. Uh, there were a lot of reviews, especially about this first album, that uh, people said, this is, this is music that, for example, Iggy Pop would have loved to do at the time, but he couldn't because the, the, the industry would not make it possible to record something like this. Yeah. That's probably true. That's that's why some strange things happen in Germany. At the time. <laughs> yeah. But because of the social and political situation at the end of the sixties, of course, everybody was was highly uh, politically uh, how to say it. Uh, uh, I don't know the word now. Motivated, yes. You had to. You had to. You had to have your opinion. You had to have a statement, and you had to have. A, that's also in, in music. Yeah, it had to have a meaning, and it had to have a social meaning and a, a social political meaning. And this was very important. There were many political groups like Tonsteiner Scherben or Flore Cologne. There were these protest songs, and mm -hmm. uh, so. On the other hand, there was part, there was the hippie movement, and which also came to, to Germany, the Kommune, uh, the, the Amondeur, for example, who, who emerged at the time. Did you, were you part of this commune scene at all? No. 
uh, I, I wasn't. <laughs> Not <laughs> trying was, to live that way? No. Oh, yeah. so, no, this was, this was uh, I was a bit too young. I mean, I was 16, I was 17. I was 17 when we founded the band Ashra Temple. Uh, I was uh, yeah, 18 when we recorded the album, the first album. Uh, I still went to school. I, uh, I, I lived with my parents. Hartmut the same, so we still made it, yeah, for fun. <laughs> we didn't, we did not really thought of making a musical career. It was we, we loved the music. We had success. So of course, we liked it, and so we continued. But we didn't think very much of uh, the next ten years or so. This, okay, so speaking of like labels and genres and whatnot, it's so there's a term that you mentioned before. It begins with a K, uh, ends with outrock. Is this something that uh, that you? When did you first hear this term? That was this genre name that was assigned to bands like yourself, Ashra Temple, Can, Craftwork. Did you reject this this name that this grouping, or did you just think which oh, which name? I'm not going to say it. <laughs> no, because I know it's contentious for some people. Aha. Uh-huh. No, so, no, no, it's, no. It's funny. So, of course. Do you mean crowd, crowd rock? Or, yeah. <laughs> no, it's a funny name. So it's okay. I think it's quite appropriate, the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, yeah, it's some, it has something German and uh, Kraut is also something mixed up. It's, uh, it's not really organized, so it, it has something and it's not really rock. Uh, so, of course, in the beginning, many musicians, uh, especially musicians in, in, yeah, in Germany who, who took it very serious, who play serious rock music they were of course offended but I think uh, if, if you look at this who is who is now or who is when you remember the time when you remember the bigger names um, this is not really this is so diverse this music there's there's the electronic scene there's a jazz scene the free jazz scene for example or, there's uh, some, some like embryo, they played some early word music. Uh, there are folk songs like Witches of Westrop or, or Hölderlin or these bands. There were, yeah, Guru Guru, there were Kran, was, was a kind of jazz rock band. So it's, it's quite diverse. Quite yeah. diverse. And, and so it, it's not, it's, yeah, I think it's quite appropriate now today to, to call it like that. So I don't have any <laughs> problems with it. Um, you recorded an album with Timothy Leary. How did this project come into being? We had, we had, we recorded our second album, Schwingung, and uh, we wanted to include some lyrics for the next album as well. We had a crazy singer for the, for the second album, Schwingung, which was, uh, yeah, it was a nice experiment, but uh, it was a bit, uh, yeah, very adventurous. <laughs> so, and we used the text we had on the, on the cover of our first album, we had a text from Ginsberg from the whole, an excerpt. Allen Ginsberg. Allen okay. Ginsberg, yeah. And so we thought maybe we could win. It was difficult with text, so we, we had to make something in English uh, because we thought of being an international uh, music, music or musicians, and so we didn't want to make something in German. And uh, so we thought maybe we can win Allen Ginsberg to work with him or something. 
But Allen Ginsberg was nowhere, nowhere to find. Nobody knew where he was. And then our producer, uh, the label owner, Rolf Ulrich Kaiser, he came uh, one day and said, uh, well, Timothy Leary is in Switzerland. We can make a contact. Uh, I didn't know at all who was Timothy Leary. I'd never heard of him before. <laughs> But my partner, Hartmut, was really uh, enthusiastic. Wow, Timothy Leary is great. Well, he's a fugitive at this time, right? He's, uh, he's a fugitive at this time. Right, right. He's escaped the United States and escaped from prison. He escaped uh, from prison. Yeah, he was, uh, Tim was, was working as an as a experimental. He, he did experiments with, with uh, LSD as a neurologist and a psychotherapist uh, on the, at the Harvard University. And this was the time when LSD became very popular, not only yeah, as, a, as, a, as a party drug in, in, uh, in the United States. And so he was thought of being uh, very dangerous for the youth. And uh, uh, I think it was Nixon who called him one of the state enemies number one. And they tried to get get him out of the out of the <laughs> out of the business. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, he was he was uh, he was caught because. Um, The, the, the rules or the laws for drugs are different in each state in the United States. Uh, differ very much. I don't know if it's still, to, maybe it's still today, but it was at the time. But there's no really border between, I don't know, Ohio and Nebraska, where you don't know where, when you leave one another. So. And they just found a simple trick. He went somewhere across the country and he was, was caught with, with 10 grams of, of marijuana or so. But he was sentenced to 10 years, so to get him out of, uh, yeah, to get him away. And he escaped from the prison, that's a funny story, in the prison, uh, because when they had to choose which prison he was uh, going to, he, had, he was going to, uh, they had to make a test with him, uh, how dangerous he is, how, how big is the danger of escaping or whatever. So, and Tim Leary was very amused when he went to the test to find the paper. He, he, he uh, read the questions. And then he, he found out that this he developed this test as a neurologist, as a, as a psychiatrist. <laughs> so he knew exactly what to answer. Uh, <laughs> and he, he came to a relatively open uh, 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 prison. Uh, uh, And there he, then his, his former wife uh, managed somehow in contact with, uh, with, Eldridge, with, uh, with the Black Panther to free him and to help him to escape. Then he went to, uh, they helped him to leave the country. He went to Algeria, where the leader of the Black Panthers was uh, resident. Eldridge Cleaver. Eldridge Cleaver. But they didn't get along together because Tim Leary was a very easy uh, guy and he was not interested very much in politics and uh, Eldridge Cleaver was a very hardliner in military. So, yeah, so they didn't, uh, yeah, they, they were not really good uh, together and, and Tim Leary felt a little bit like another prison there. He didn't know. Uh, and then he moved, somehow he moved. I think he found this, this guy, this English guy, Brian Barrett, and uh, they moved somehow to Switzerland because in Switzerland he had some friends. 
political friends who cared that he was not uh, delivered, or how to say it, uh, to the United States. And uh, yeah, so he lived there for about one year. And in that time we met, Hartmut went there with the producer and they made a concept and uh, funny thing by the way, uh, Switzerland was of course in Switzerland, LSD was uh, uh, invented, <laughs> Albert Hoffmann. So he went to the motherland basically, uh, yeah. And uh, so, but the record is not about LSD. Um, uh, Tim, uh, Tim Leary was writing a book about seven levels of consciousness. That is something that, uh, a theory, I don't, I don't even know if it's his theory, maybe it's an older one, but he wrote about it. And a theory that different stages, levels, each human being is passing through more or less. And uh, so we took this idea of the seven levels as a basic structure, as a basic uh, concept for the album. And yeah, then we founded, we went back to Berlin and we, uh, uh, we had some more guests, guest musicians for, mm -hmm. the, for the album. And, uh, and then we recorded in summer, we went to Switzerland and recorded there for some days. So you're still performing this material today with different musicians. Um, and that's Timothy Leary on vocals, though, right? Yes, initially he was supposed only to write the lyrics and to speak some words. Uh, and then he was so uh, enthralled by this happening that he just started to sing. And, <laughs> and he could sing. <laughs> it worked, yes. So we left it like this. It was a quite chaotic production in, in, in Switzerland. We went to a studio, the most modern, advanced studio in, in Bern, in the small city of Bern. At the time, we brought uh, the engineer from Cologne, from our other studio. Uh, he started to rebuild the studio completely, uh, to install the monitors different and to make this. We were only hanging around. and We lived all together for some days in a nice house uh, up the hills. and. Um, uh, yeah, it was was nice thing, and um, so we recorded some material, and then. Uh, but we went later in the studio to mix it again, and in Cologne. So Tim, he was not allowed; he couldn't come to Cologne. So he sent his assistant Brian Barrett to Cologne, and Brian was always uh, uh, playing it over the phone to Tim mm -hmm. in Switzerland. He said, "Yeah, great. We need more synthesizers. We need more sound. We need here more, more space, more cosmic." <laughs> so it became, yeah, well, uh, in the end, uh, very chaotic. But yeah, it was a nice experience, and. Um, uh, well, after all, I think musically it's not, uh, well, maybe not uh, so inventive, but uh, I, I liked it very much that it finally it, it happened, uh, and that's, that's a good thing. So. And the funny thing now is that uh, for some years, uh, three years ago, 2015, I was invited to Melbourne, Australia, for a festival to perform, for a solo performance. And uh, the woman who curated the festival proposed that I would probably play with some other musicians to perform some session or some workshops or so. And, and I don't like those kind of sessions. Mm -hmm. and 
So uh, my wife proposed, why don't you play some old Ashkatemper? <laughs> and I said, well, great idea. So, and they looked uh, for some, they proposed some musicians. This was Ariel Pink from uh, Los Angeles. That was uh, Shex Chamberlain who played with Ariel Pink and Oren Ambarchi, who is also Australian. He's well known for his solo work, solo experimental guitar and And he also played with uh, K.G. Haino, and he's doing a lot of things. I didn't know any of the three. And so I thought, okay, let's try. I, I got in contact with them by emails, and I wrote, well, do you know some, do you need some material? Do you know some scores, maybe some lyrics? And they said, ha, 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 we know it. <laughs> we know everything. We, we, we are so familiar with this album. With Tim, I proposed Timothy Leary, maybe for singing with Ariel. And, Uh, and some, some, some of the second album, Schwingung. So we made a mixture, a one-hour program of, of these two uh, albums. Uh, and uh, yeah, we met only uh, one day before in, in Australia. We had one day rehearsal and it was perfect. It was like if we had played it the day before. And, uh, and later, we, we brought it out as a record last year. Uh, and later... Uh, when I heard the recordings, I, I thought phew, it sounded perfectly like like the original. Yeah. It, it could be, uh, yeah, it could be some lost demo tape or something like that. So this not a big well, I mean, this is a con this is a recurring theme for you in a way because you are constantly revisiting, even though some of this material is older. You are reinventing and re-performing re and representing this material quite a bit in recent years. I actually want to skip ahead a little bit because. Um, I want to get to some of your solo recordings. And yesterday, this idea of reduction came up uh, in terms of just stepping back and maybe having less or being available, having things less available to you and simplifying and how that can be an effective tool uh, as a creative person. Um, when you did the, the first solo record, Inventions for Electric Guitar, um, Ashra Temple had dissolved. Did you feel that that was a necessary thing to do something entirely on your own? Yes, it was not not immediately, but it developed within one year. So I, I uh, well, Ashra Temple was basically a project from, from my school friend Hartmut and me for many years from the very first school band, cover band until, yeah, Timothy Leary. And then we made a nice fourth album called Join In, which is, a, which is also a an improvised album from from the beginning to the end, but very soft and very yes, a bit uh, relaxed, and, and it's not aggressive at all. It's it's very different from the first one. And then he quit. We we he didn't want to play anymore. He didn't want being professionally a musician. He he wanted to keep up his mind free, and he wanted to play when he wants to play, and not because it's a, a record production, and not to make concerts, or it was just didn't work anymore. And and so I uh, I thought of continuing. With, I, I like the idea of a, of a band or a group. Uh, I tried with uh, various musicians. Uh, Uh, but it didn't work that, that much uh, uh, in, in this way, and uh, I was not so happy with it. And that's, yeah, somehow one year later I came up, I came up with um, 
uh, with the idea of, of a solo album and uh, a little bit I was influenced by the I, I, I found out about minimalism minimal music which became popular beginning of the 1970s in, in Germany uh, and I heard uh, some Terry Riley and Steve Reich at festivals in Berlin And it was especially Terry Riley influenced me as a musician, yeah, not so much maybe as a composer, but uh, I saw her playing and I, I, I was really attracted how he performed and how he played. With, he was he's a very fluent, very great uh, keyboard player. And just with a simple tape delay, he made incredible sounds and all these minimal structures. He, he, he played and played, he could do it very, with very simple mm -hmm. technical equipment. And so I thought, why not? Uh, I think I can play a little guitar, so why not? I should try it with a guitar. <laughs> and so uh, I used, uh, yes, I, I, I took that, what I had, uh, which was just one guitar, and uh, I used a tape recorder for, for a delay, uh, and I used the minimalism, or I used the, the, uh, the structure of the delay as, as to, to keep, With this rhythm to 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 keep the the structure of the of the repeti repetitive um, uh, patterns, and another idea was to use the only guitar as a sound source, uh, so not to. Uh, but this is also a minimalistic approach in a way because uh, you just. Uh, reduce, you, you take one, two, three elements or so, say, I, I concentrate on this and don't do anything else and I don't have to do overdubs and more drums and more whatever. Uh, I try to make the best out of these elements. Yeah, so. so that's just the electric guitar, multi-tracked, with delay. And that's it. Yes. <laughs> you, you, you were treating this also, like you, you mentioned to me in an email recently that you're actually representing this with an orchestra or you have presented this with an orchestra as well. So it's scored. How uh, much of this was scored going into this? How much was just, you know, improvisation? No, the original is, is uh, for, um, four, for four guitars. So there are four voices um, and I performed it once in, in Japan with four, music, four, uh, with four guitar players, with uh, Elliot Sharp from New York, with uh, uh, Steve Hillage uh, from England and uh, a good old friend of mine from the Virgin days. And a young Chinese uh, uh, player, Shu Wang, who was very popular in Beijing, he has several groups. And uh, just now I found, a, for some years, I found a great band in Denmark, in uh, Denmark, uh, six young musicians, guitar players, experimental players called Silklin. Uh, they play experimental guitar music. They used to play in a circle and the audience is in the middle, so they have a kind of surround effect, but very interesting idea. And they were fascinated. Of course, they knew the piece and they liked it. And uh, I invited them for a concert at, uh, in uh, Szczecin, uh, Poland, at the Philharmonic. Uh, there's a great new Philharmonic. And we performed it there. That was uh, so. It's not an orchestra. It's just a, a, a group of guitar players because it's, uh, it's a guitar piece. Uh, so, uh, but of course, I cannot play it alone. So I, I, <laughs> I uh, 
to have the four voices, so you can play it maybe with six voices. Uh, uh, yes, I, I, I've written down the um, scores. I have uh, here the, the actual, where is it? Album, the new album, the vinyl album we have made some two years ago. I put on the backside the the um, uh, original score that I had written for it. I had to try. I want. I tried to find uh, a solution to um, to to write down the the, the delays, uh, the initial note, the first, the second, third delay, and any kind of three-dimensional way, so um, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, what, that was a funny idea, so of course I had written it down, but I wrote it down later, so first I played it, and then I wrote it, <laughs> then I have uh, written it. Uh, so. Is there something that you want to show us with... with... Yeah, yeah, so uh, yeah, uh, so I can show, I can make, I can demonstrate it probably a little bit on the guitar with... The uh, I used a, I used a delay, for the delay I used at the time I used a tape recorder Revox A77 which was a state of the art tape recorder and uh, the delay was produced uh, the length of the delay was produced by the speed of the tape and by the distance between the recording and the playback head. So it was a fixed delay, and uh, later I got a modified model of this tape uh, machine where I could change the speed, and then I could change the, the delay times also. But for this, at this point, I used also I had just a delay of 370 around 370 milliseconds. Uh, I can make just a little demonstration for it, so <laughs> that you hear that you hear how it has been done. So this is this is just uh, that was a kind of delay, and then I used two different um, uh, two different tempi for uh, two different pieces. The first side, echo waves, is in a triolic uh, tempo, and the second piece, Polaris, is in a straight four-four tempo. So this is uh, like the first one. First, uh, oops, yeah, <laughs> that's the first. Uh, um, the initial uh, part. The first guitar starts with that. Then there's a second guitar which plays a, a bit more and on a higher level. A third, which was more a bass line, and, and one uh, one voice is more uh, 
I'll say it. It's more a sound. Uh, I used I used a volume pedal, nothing more, and, and that was it. And so I created this first piece, the second piece, all the other piece in the other tempo. This is uh, slower. This is like this. <laughs> This is played for, this is the basic theme. This is played for, I had to play it for 20 minutes. So this is, um, uh, there's no no editing or so. So I played it in real time because I didn't want to cut the tape. So, and uh, it was the first, it was the first recording I did in my own small studio with a tape recorder. So uh, I had to work for it for a while to get it on tape because uh, technically it was not so easy. So you have to concentrate for 20 minutes. And if you have some scratch or some, uh, thing at 18 minutes uh, and you start again from the beginning <laughs> and uh, I, had to, I had some problems with my refrigerator in the kitchen he was producing clicks from time to time when he switched off and on so I had to turn it off <laughs> so, so but somehow I managed to get it it took three months or so the whole, uh, the whole thing to record it all in all uh, and that's uh, yeah so that's uh, it's a very meditative thing. It's you get into a kind of uh, trance, maybe when you play that for twenty minutes. Uh, so, uh, and there's another nice thing that I can show you uh, because I wanted to make every sound uh, with just with guitar. Uh, I tried something with. Uh, I have to show it to you. This is a piece of metal that I used. Uh, this is originally from a slide guitar or from Hawaiian guitar. And I used it as a kind of uh, bow or like uh, playing the strings like this. So to, to get uh, a kind of, yeah, how to say it, um, string sound or not the percussive sound of a guitar. The, the one thing you can do is that you work with a volume pedal that you take the attack away. And this was the other one that I tried for the, for the, third, for the second piece, Quasosphere, which is the shortest piece. It goes something like this. Just an example. (laughs) 
So you mentioned Terry Riley and minimalism and that being an influence on you, um, especially with Echo Waves, but and obviously with things that we're going to talk about next. I wonder if just African-American music and, you know, this sort of repetition being a thing, an innovation of James Brown and other people, was that an influence on you at any point? Yes, we had a review from the first Ashra Temple that sounds that somebody has written Ashra Temple sounds like the James Brown band on acid. <laughs> they were on acid too, actually. So <laughs> various points. Um, of course, over the years, everything. But uh, it goes back from from all my music. I mean, it goes back to the to to my studies in classical guitar. What I love to play from these uh, old ancient composers, Caruli, uh, Carcassi, Zor. They all wrote pieces called etudes, etude, which is just pieces for rehearsal. They are not really considered as big compositions, but they are just for rehearsing your, your fingers, your right fingers, your left hand. And uh, you can, more or less, you can improvise with these passages. So you just play very simple chords. You change from one chord to the other one. It's just for, yes, for rehearsing in a way, for rehearsing your, your uh, physical training and uh, there you can start I started to yeah you can start to, it gives you possibilities to improvise uh, because you can interchange it exchange it it doesn't matter it, it's only for for training uh, and it's also a repetitive thing it's, it's just small patterns that you repeat and repeat and repeat to, to train it so uh, so maybe I was already in that part influenced and of course it was the music the, the, the popular music like uh, yeah the, the Motown music. especially the long pieces I always loved I I, I, uh, I remember I was fascinated from this piece by the Rolling Stones uh, going home which was uh, crazy about 11 minutes long uh, nobody at the time made pieces of 11 minutes so it was <laughs> I really liked that idea so do you hear the music in a different way now after all this time no I don't hear it so different this uh, is uh, no every time different this is my my favorite uh, way in, in music to use that's what I explained before Some sometimes I have basic structures but with these structures I begin to improvise yeah. you've obviously been working on a lot of other things in addition to representing this music um, composing doing scores and whatnot. Um, but I wonder just in terms of what we started this conversation off with in terms of talking about context and the context in which you started um what do you think all of this has taught you, if anything, in terms of how a context can fuel creation of something, and yet that thing that comes from that very specific set of circumstances, being the Germany, the Berlin of your youth, now creates something that people who have very, very little connection, direct connection to, still have this attachment to? still have some feeling for and some connection to. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts at all about that. This is a very complicated question. <laughs> I can only repeat that in the beginning for me that was all more like free 
playing with it and I didn't intend any much, very much to, to become very professional. So I was interested in music. What is music? How is music uh, existing? How is it? What is it? Uh, how to play it? How to... Why does it sound like this, uh, like that? Uh, when I listen to something in the radio, uh, what, uh, what's the, how does it, how is it made? Uh, when I when I play the guitar at home, it sounds completely different. So how how does it work? And so I was interested in this side. I was interested in music, uh, yes, music structures. How what's what's the difference between a major and a minor chord? What what's if you put it in this order or in that order? Uh, how did old old composers, uh, popular composers, how did they compose their their symphonies, their pieces? How did Bach did it? And so. Yeah, formal formulas and uh, and to try that and trying that out and that's that's my own yeah, for my own experience and I'm very happy when 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 something that I play or that I make or that I release when this is a uh, yeah this is a success and this is or when people like it and when people like the music and of course I like uh, uh, last time I played in Copenhagen uh, the there were people entering the stage and began to dance. So I, I, I was, yeah, I like it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, we'd like to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on the podcast and you're not already subscribed, please do it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really does help people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole other world of great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now, and thank you for listening.